If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Micah. You'll be better off if you have an iPad or a smartphone because it just shows you where it is and you can just click on it. If you have hard copy, then look it up in the table of contents. This is the second in our Christmas series, Christmas Glory for those who have eyes to see it. Last week we looked at Simeon. I'm going to eventually be talking to you about Herod. But I want to get there through this text. Micah chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, I'll talk about that in a minute, who are, who are too little. Please notice these words. You'll see how important they are in the next text. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Okay? Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. And then these strange words, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who, when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now, he, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian army comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Let's pray. We recognize the huge difference between the promise that where two or three are gathered in your name, you're there in the midst. We recognize the difference between your presence with us and our making room. We used to sing it in so many carols, in so many songs about room being made for Jesus. And we usually think of people who aren't saved. Swing your heart's door widely open, making room for Jesus. But we recognize just as surely we who are gathered in your house today, the difference between your presence and our making room. That room for fresh cleansing from sin. Room for fresh joy in the face of discouragement and loss. 
room for celebrating in a deeper way the greatness of Jesus that enlivens our weekly days. And so let there be that kind of aggressive listening. Help us as we deal with your word this day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a passage so obscure that a lot of you had to look up Micah in the table of contents of your Bible. But the scholars, just prior to Jesus' birth, they knew these verses and others like them quite well. Matthew, in a text we're going to look at in just a second, Matthew tells us that King Herod had these words quoted to him. Herod, King Herod, had these words, parts of the words we just read from Micah. Herod had those words quoted to him, and they they filled his power-hungry heart with trepidation. That's in Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We, we, we saw his star when it rose. And we've come to worship him. So when Herod the king heard this, he was, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. That means all of the religious establishment, the leadership, not every human being in Jerusalem. slide is that way. I'm sorry. That's the one. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, this is Herod, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, look, for so it was written by the prophet, And then the wise men partially quote and partially misquote. I want you to notice that. The words from our text, from Micah. And here's the quote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. Now, see if you see the difference. Are by no means least. Did you catch it? See if I can do this for you again. Look at the Micah text. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Okay. Now you go back here. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are, are by no means least. They flip it. Among the rulers of Judah, and from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And so, the wise men from the east, they are uh, familiar with this text because they've they've been studying it. They, They knew baby Jesus, born in Bethlehem, was the one about whom the prophets wrote, the promised Messiah. They had also been studying Jeremiah's prophecy... That's how they put two and two together about the star. Because Jeremiah prophesied that and they've been following it. So so in short, 
these wise men saw what many people saw in those days, that everything was coming about as the prophets had foretold. They saw what so many people today miss. Something significant was happening. The promised Messiah. Herod was so sure of this that it filled his heart with fear. He, he knew his rulership would be no match for the one whom Isaiah said would be called Mighty God with the government resting upon his shoulder. And so Herod and the whole religious establishment, that's what Matthew means when he says, and all is all Jerusalem with him. They were, they were deeply troubled, so troubled that you'll remember the account. He, he attempts the annihilation of all those two years and under. He's desperate. This cannot be allowed to happen. Of course, one of the things that made this prophecy so unlikely was the fact that neither Mary nor Joseph lived in Bethlehem. The prophet said, out of Bethlehem. Joseph was to go there because it had been the place of his birth. He may not have lived there since his birth. Mary was living in Nazareth when she became pregnant. She was no condition to travel anywhere. And, and that's why God saw to it that, that all the might and muscle, the structures of the powers that be in Rome, God saw to it that they all did his exact bidding right at that time, calling for a census to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. That's God. Let that wonderful old story pound something freshly into your soul. Oh, how we brush past some important things. Every Christmas we celebrate not only the fact of Christ's birth, but, but the way in which God brings it about. Apparently he moves galaxies and empires to fulfill his word. There was absolutely nothing likely in Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Everything seemed against it. How great is our God? What, what seems stacked up against you today? What is it that makes the fulfillment of God's promise and purpose in your life look absolutely impossible? Matthew doesn't tell us this. I'm speculating. But it seems to me probably more happened than we read in Matthew's brief account. I don't believe for a moment that Herod just listened to these wise men make their speech and move on. I think Herod heard what they said. I think he took out the scrolls. I'm sure he blew the dust off these ancient manuscripts and he saw things that turned his heart to butter. I want to look at some of them. One. Micah's prophecy tells us not to allow the smallness of the birthplace to cause us to miss the greatness of the birth. I already pointed that out to you in Micah 5, 1 and 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, which means, which means fruitful, who are, who are 
too little to be among the clans of Judah. From, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. There's so much there. Look at that first phrase. Too little. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. Most people don't even know the story of Judah. Do you know who Judah was? Do you know where Judah came from? Judah was one of the sons of Leah. Remember Leah? Leah was the wife Jacob didn't love and Jacob didn't want. That was Leah. Remember? How like God. I get that from people all the time. Pastor John, I married the wrong person. We shouldn't even be married. How like God to orchestrate the redeemer of the world through Leah's son, Judah. That's how God works. And then there's the mention of Bethlehem and the fact that it was too small to count. That's what it says. There was nothing about Bethlehem that could or should attract such an event. There was nothing about Bethlehem that could have earned such a blessing. The Messiah would be born in a place called the least. The least. And that was so illogical that Herod's scholars thought, this is a mistake. <laughs> Remember I showed you? Herod's scholars said, no, no, it means by no means least. They, they wanted to reinterpret those words so that, you know, they at least made sense. By the way, just on the side, put a, put a comma. Just take note of the nature of the revelation we have in God's word. Just take note of the fact that the words make a difference. So that, so that when you change nouns and verbs and adverbs and adjectives, you, you mess with divine truth. That's the point. Such is the nature of the inspiration of God's word. Change a couple words and you change the truth. I believe we're supposed to learn something about our God from the contrast between Micah's prophecy and the adjustment of Herod's scholars. There's the way we anticipate God working, and there's the way God manifests his loving, gracious intentions. Micah's prophecy paints big events in, in really broad strokes. We just looked at a few of the verses. But if you look at all six of them, very few details are given. God warns of the coming judgment at the hands of the Assyrians. That's in the first verse. Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. God's people, Israel, they're on the brink, really, of terrifying times. And, and then God says he'll come again and restore his people. Verse 3. The rest of the brothers shall return to Israel. But again, not much in the way of detail. It's just a high overview, broad account, fast-forwarding. But suddenly, in, in the middle of all those broad strokes, 
you get this, you get this painting of one particular detail. Bethlehem. Watch Bethlehem. Out of you, one will come forth, verse 2. I think there are two reasons for this detail. We'll look at the, the second one in the next point. But the first lesson, the one the wise men twisted in their representation of these words to Herod, is, is, is the smallness of Bethlehem shows all who will see it right to this day the um, amazing pattern of how God works his redemptive grace into this broken world. There are people, there are people sitting in this sanctuary right now who in the depths of your heart, your own conscience, whatever knowledge you have of religious things, maybe some Bible verses, you sense the failure of your own heart. You live with regret and the stain of sin. And the thing that keeps God's grace from renewing fellowship and joy and peace in your heart is you have this idea in your head, I don't, Pastor Don, I don't qualify for that. Bethlehem, the least, the one who didn't deserve it. And those people need to know about Micah's prophecy, about Judah, the son of Leah, and about Bethlehem. They need to know that Christmas is all about, it's all about glory to God in the highest, not glory to us for our worthiness. Bethlehem establishes the same, the same pattern, actually, as the stable and the manger. We had a manger here Sunday night, and I, 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 I sat there and I watched, and here's the thinking that was going on in my mind while everyone was looking at how cute the kids were. There's, there's an incredible... Is there not an incredible strangeness to the fact that there's no room at the inn when Jesus arrives. I've rushed past that way too often. How, how could it be possible that the God who can move stars, provide singing angels, a choir just to announce to shepherds, rearrange the agenda of the entire Roman Empire, get Mary to Joseph and Joseph to Bethlehem, and, oh, forgot to book a room. Shoot. <laughs> Is that what's going on here? This is obviously not a mistake, church. This is God revealing something in this conspicuous, out-of-place detail. God the Son, right from his birth, has a very deliberate, intentional link with outsiders and the estranged and the people who don't fit in and the people who don't know what they should do next. That's what that's about. This is the message, isn't it? 
Isn't this the message we need at Christmas? Santa may know who's naughty or nice. And the problem is, if we look deep enough into our hearts, that's going to leave a lot of us out in the cold. I said there were two reasons. The second reason for Christ's birth at, at Bethlehem. Point number two. Micah's prophecy about Christ's birth at Bethlehem ties Christ's salvation with the promises of God. And, and I, want to, I want to take a minute to look at some important, but I think um, rarely studied background for this point. One of the mightiest promises in the Bible comes to King David when he was least expecting it. And if you can, look it up with me. It's in 2 Samuel, chapter 7, 12 to 16. And I want to show you why this is really a hard text to deal with, even though it holds some precious truth. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, starting at verse 12. God speaks through the prophet. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, that's tough to work into the text. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And here's why it's a hard text. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And, and, and your house, this is what David wanted to build, and your kingdom shall be made sure, there's that word again, forever before me. Your throne, speaking to David, will be established again forever. Tricky verses. I mean, there's a promise made regarding King David's reign. He's, he's told that the establishment of his throne is going to continue long after his death. That's clear. The problem is, no one person seems to fulfill all the terms of the promise. Because, because we know that the one to whom the promise refers will be a person who commits sin, verse 14, because it says when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. So, so there's a very human side presented here. And, and yet the promise also says that David's successor will have, will have an eternal See the forever? Your throne shall be established forever, 16. And this is one of many prophecies that have this kind of double fulfillment. It refers, of course, first of all to Solomon, David's natural son, who would come after him and build a house for the Lord, verse 13, a physical temple. And Solomon would sin, did sin, and God disciplined him. 
But Solomon wouldn't and couldn't establish David's throne forever. That, that didn't work. There would be another king to come, but who would be of the lineage of David, who would establish David's house in a different eternal sense. So, so this text is tying together two descendants of David, Solomon and the coming Messiah. And, and they're being tied together, one a sinner, one not, for a very important reason. Because they are both involved, though in very different ways, in building a house for God. This, this is really what 2 Samuel chapter 7 is about. David won't be the one to build a physical house for the Lord. David, that's not going to be you. Solomon would come after him and do that, and not David. One of the reasons listed is David had been a man of bloodshed. And I can think of all sorts of arguments David might have had with God about that. Wait a minute, didn't you tell me to take this, 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 this? But that's only one reason. God was going to build a different kind of house through David. Not the physical temple that his son Solomon would build. And you read this text and you see God saying to David, Listen, David, you aren't the one to build a house for my name. That will be your son, Solomon. I don't want you to confuse the issue here, David. There's, there's another sense, an eternal sense. There's another house that, that will come through you. But, but the issue isn't you building a house for me. The issue you need to understand is I am going to build a house out of you, David. An eternal house of my glory and my rule. David, that's what I'm going to build through you. Not the house you're building for me through Solomon, but the house the eternal house I'm building through a descendant that you don't see yet. That's what scared Herod to death. He saw this. Everyone knew the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem because he would be, we say it all the time in the old King James, of the house and lineage of David. He would be David's offspring. And Bethlehem was the sign that God was keeping his promise. This is the amazing thing about Micah's prophecy. He asserts God's faithfulness and covenant, not when Israel was in a period of spiritual ascension and greatness, but when they were facing spiritual and physical oblivion and judgment. The northern kingdom was already destroyed. The southern kingdom was about to be judged as well. It will be 700 years before the light of hope will go on in Bethlehem. 700. Micah won't be around to see it. 
God says, write it down. God bless people who have the faith to treat God's future promises like their present realities. God bless the people who don't have to eat the apples in order to plant an orchard. Herod is scared because in his heart, in his heart he knows if this is who he thinks it is, if this is God's Messiah, then he is unstoppable. Even the sinister plans to kill all the babies won't stand in God's way. Bethlehem means what God promises, God does. Point number three, we're almost done. Micah's prophecy means Christ will shepherd his people and usher in a kingdom of everlasting peace and righteousness. Here's the text. Micah chapter 5, 4 and the first part of verse 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. What a pleasure to read those words at this Christmas season. I chose, this is the involved text. I, maybe I was right, maybe I was wrong. I thought, let's do that in the morning. It's probably more of a church crowd. I have a really simple text tonight for our Christmas Eve service. But these hope-filled words, look at the things promised. I'm going to go fast. First, Messiah will shepherd his flock. I think we're meant to consider David caring for his sheep. One of the house of David will, will give the same care, the same protection over his flock. And God's plan is fulfilled in his Redeemer's son. No need will go unfulfilled in Christ. We're not there yet. But it's promised. B, the Messiah will do everything he does in the strength of the Lord. I have so many good intentions that I'm unable to fulfill. Is anybody else like that in the room? There's, I see in my own life there's such a gap between my wishes and my ability but, but the one born in Bethlehem will not, have, will not have any of his promises failed or any of his plans failed because he couldn't do it. That gap that exists in every one of us does not exist in him. He comes, the text says, in, in the strength of the Lord... No one will stand against his will. No one will be able to fight against the peace that he has for his people. There will come a new creation. Three. Messiah will be great to the ends of the earth. Great to the ends of the earth. This is not going to be some tribal deity. Years ago, 
Greeny and I were at uh, Jack Hayford's pastor's conference. Part of our little routine was we would take the car one afternoon and I would always drive, it's maybe a 35, 40 minute drive from, from Hayford's church and I'd drive out to Fuller Seminary in Pasadena or as I like to call it, Mecca. They have this massive bookstore. Huge, huge bookstore. And I would go in there and start looking around, and, and after a little while, Rainy would go, and you, if you've ever been there, you, there's a parking lot, and you, out there you can see there's, there's you know, Nordstrom's and Macy's. And, and she would go and do some shopping, and then I'd be looking around, and then I'd see her coming back, and it would, to me, seem like just a few minutes, but it's been hours. And then we would do the same thing every year. I would, I would scurry to the distant corner somewhere in the bookstore, and I would sit down on the floor with some books, and I would start reading. And it's really big. It's like this sanctuary. And she would be walking through all the stacks of books, and then you would hear her voice, kind of quiet but loud enough for me to hear it. And you'd hear her say, I know you're in here, and I'm going to find you. I will never forget the year I found an old volume in a used book section, and it was called The Early Preaching of Karl Barth. And I kind of labored over since I was in Lanigan, Saskatchewan, his church dogmatics. Karl Barth, probably the, whether you agree with him or not on everything, undoubtedly the dominant theologian of the 20th century, just in sheer bulk and volume. So I was fascinated when I saw this little book called The Early Preaching of Karl Barth. And it was from his very first tiny pastorate in Sapenwil in Switzerland. And I was so stirred reading his comments from John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's a long quote. Bear with me as I read it. This is from his sermon. The light shines. Hear this message of joy. Good news. Gospel for us and the whole world. Oh, we may proclaim it courageously, defiantly, against all the darkness of our time. Against the darkness in our own hearts, in our community, in our mental institutions. Of course, we wouldn't call them that now. This is old. And prisons. Against the darkness in our conversations with one another. The darkness in the newspapers that we read. Against the darkness that darkens so many sick beds. The beds of the dying and against the pernicious darkness of our social conditions. Without hesitating, we may proclaim against all darkness, the light shines. It is forever true to itself. It remains what it is, even in the deepest darkness. That is why it shines. Because it is so true, we may be courageously defiant. There is no reason to doubt, to despair, to ever give up to think only somber and hopeless thoughts about ourselves and our communities and our world. The light shines. 
And there is no reason to draw back from any power of darkness. The light shines. This is what must be and remain the most important. Over against all that happens, all that appears otherwise true, all that otherwise presses to occupy and fill our minds and hearts, cause us to be burdened with fear and care, based only on ourselves, we human beings really don't understand life. Based only on ourselves, on what we think, decide, and do, we will always be in error in answering life's most important questions, even with the best of intentions. Now, however, in the Savior, something beyond us. Something from the other side has begun to move. God has given the course of this hopeless world a whole new direction. Something from the other side. In our hearts, isn't that what we need? Don't we know that's what we need? Something from the other side. It's not going to come from this side. Mark it down, church. We should shout this from the rooftops this Christmas. The one born in Bethlehem, will not be one among many objects of worship. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess him as Lord. The whole earth, the Bible says, will be full of his glory. The day is fast coming when we will see the fulfillment of a Christmas carol. We only sing in faith right now. He rules the world. With truth and grace. And makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. The one born in Bethlehem, he still has much work to do. But just as surely as he was born in Bethlehem when all the odds were against it, he will, he will finish and accomplish everything. It is firm. It is certain, and for those who resist his will by asserting their own, for those who are consumed by their own agendas, distracted by their own possessions, for those who, like Herod, see the Messiah's rule as a threat to their own, there are lots of people like that. There is nothing but terror. The Bible says he will come with a rod of iron. He will eternally beat down all opposition, just as surely as he fulfilled all the prophecies about being born in Bethlehem. meek souls will receive him still the dear Christ enters in this is the time this is the time will come to my heart Lord Jesus let's pray